I think when you really think about where kind of the next cycle is going and sort of the new user personas that need to be brought in, if you're dealing particularly with applications that are largely consumer facing, I mean, gaming, social, uh, community generated IP, like those people aren't really going to spend the time learning how to use a MetaMask and understanding what's going under the hood. So you essentially really need to improve the UX as you're dealing with in modern crypto. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GM, GM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host. Today, we're going to talk about some really interesting topics. I'm joined with Derek, investing partner at Variant, a venture capital firm in the Web3 and crypto space. Derek, thank you for joining. I've found a lot of your content you've been tweeting about, like just really interesting. So I think we're going to dive into some cool topics today. Thanks. Appreciate it. Big fan of the show. So excited to dive in. Heck yeah. Well, let's just start off, you know, right off the bat, I'm curious to know, you know how you got into crypto and how that led to you being an investing partner at Variant. I, I know your background a little bit has been you were studying finance, contributing to some like Web3 organizations and DAOs, if, I, if I'm correct. And uh, I've read some of your, your writing and I think writing in, in crypto and, and podcasting is just such a good way to get like thoughts down and out in the world. It helps you think through these concepts. And it's really some of the the threads and the articles you wrote that really got me interested in, in how you're thinking about some of these Web3 principles. Yeah, awesome. We definitely double click on the content point and its importance in Web3. So I might really been interested in investing for pretty much all my life. My gift when I was eight for Christmas was actually $1,000 in an E-Trade account. So <laughs> started off pretty early. I'd always been really interested just kind of broadly in markets and investing and Throughout school, got really interested, I would say, kind of like centrally long, broad trends. Ended up applying and going to Georgetown, uh, studying econ and math in the foreign service school there. Also walked onto the rowing team and ended up actually being part of the student-run hedge fund on campus. And had known about crypto really for, I'd say, like since high school, been pretty familiar with Bitcoin, but was asked to just do some like very high-level research there and kind of immediately uh, got really interested in the space. That was also around the time of the pandemic, which uh, we were actually totally virtual that year. And <laughs> to say the least, I was not a huge fan of Zoom classes. So <laughs> ended up just kind of taking a few at night and ended up working for Accolade Partners, which actually launched one of the first institutional crypto fund of funds. So they were investors in like Variant, A16Z, Polychain, Framework, 1KX, a lot of the big crypto VCs. And that was kind of an eye-opening experience. They also invested in some like kind of mainstream traditional venture, think like A16Z's main funds, Benchmark, Excel, and just kind of watching what was going on in crypto compared to enterprise and consumer tech, literally the other two hottest sectors of the economy was pretty outstanding. So basically came away from that thinking something big is clearly happening here, just kind of looking at all the capital and talent flooding in. So ended up jumping into the on-chain world for a little, kind of purely out of interest, just looking to explore it. Was a contributor at Index where I helped out with some DAO outreach as part of this treasury diversification push. And then I also got involved with Aladdin DAO, uh, which is this stable farming investment DAO. And around that time, 
Gun and Juice Spencer Noon, uh, one of the GPs at Variant, which I was familiar with the fund uh, from working at Accolade through our network, his data analytics newsletter, and basically taught myself SQL using an online course, started contributing to that, covering a few projects. And I mean, at that point, I'd really just kind of gotten into the space purely out of interest. And it was actually <laughs> because they recruited pretty much back in like, you know, high school at this point, heading fully down the like TradFi investment banking path. That was kind of where I figured I'd go and kind of got this feeling that I had this insider privileged perspective on the rise of the internet and was going into print media. So ended up kind of changing paths, uh, went full-time into crypto, basically sent Spencer a Telegram message asking if I could join the team as an intern and kind of kept putting myself out there. Uh, I kind of gradually got drawn onto the investment team, doing a lot on like token design and distribution along with data analytics. And then basically kind of realized that we were dealing with this paradigm shifting technological transformation and pretty much the next, you know, one or two years of DeFi could potentially shape the next decade of the industry, which frankly to me seemed a lot more exciting than like 1990s Paul Krugman econ classes <laughs> and ended up making a little bit of a jump. I basically wrapped up my junior year and then I went on leave to join the fund full time to help deploy funds, to help deploy our next fund. I think that when I first started podcasting, a lot of I mean, going back maybe a full year at this point, a lot of the conversations around like, how do you get involved in Web3 started with just contributing, the guests would say like, contribute to a DAO, do some research and write about it online. But even if it's just a Twitter thread, it doesn't even have to be an article. And what I hear from you is you found places to start putting yourself out there and showing like you can put thoughts down and think about this stuff in a thoughtful way. And that led to an internship and now a full-time job without even you know finishing a full degree at, at, at college, which I think is awesome. That's a little bit what this new Web3 economy is about. It's like, even if you don't have a credential from a university, your credentials are living online in the forms of like thought leadership, right? And, and then contributing to the other Web3 companies that you did. So kudos to you on that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I would say if, yeah, anyone listening, if you're interested in moving into the space, it really is, you know, be active on Twitter, post really insightful, long threads. You never really know what's going to catch on. And then like any kind of content, any way of tangibly and provably showing interest is super helpful. Yeah. Well, we've got a range of questions to go through today, covering everything from wallets to analytics to, you know, UX and design. But I just want to start off like, why do you find crypto to be such a fascinating field to work in? I find myself thinking about this a lot because there's so much cool tech out there. But why is crypto like really capturing your imagination right now? Zooming out, I would say every decade or so, you see a major innovation almost from the platform perspective in tech. So in 1990s, you obviously had the rise of PCs, personal computers, around 2000, early internet. Uh, around 2010, you got mobile and smartphones, which when I say platform, I basically mean a new design space for devs to build net new applications. So like with mobile, you obviously had this hardware, like you had this new data collecting mechanism, like, you know, a smartphone camera can basically take pictures of everything. And now you obviously have like street views, just kind of this whole new suite of mobile applications that came along with that and modern social media, essentially. And I think what's really exciting about blockchain is it very much is, you know, looking at that pattern and directionally what's going on very much in line with that trend. So what blockchains really enable is this trustless decentralized computing environment, particularly when you look at the rise of smart contracts, obviously with Ethereum, and then kind of your whole new slew of L2s and all the ones. And I think what's really exciting about that is like, A, uh, you obviously have this new way of like, you know, executing code, smart contracts, so like cliche example is code that makes commitments. Nobody can really shut it off, but 
what we're really excited about as a fund is this idea that you can now distribute this interoperable form of ownership to users of an application, which kind of unlocks this whole new suite of game theoretic mechanisms and incentive structures, which when you think about this ability to completely bootstrap a new application, right now it's extremely hard, right? Like you kind of have massive network effects of dominating social applications along with most marketplaces that have really um, risen to any level of prominence. Whereas what you get in crypto is finally this new attack vector for possibly dismantling some of those, which is uh, frankly, in my opinion, like token distribution and some of the net new perspectives you get there. And I think zooming out, what really differentiates the innovation in blockchain from some of those prior ones is a fundamentally new business model, right? Token networks. That's not really something that you got before um, in any of those other massive advances. So that made me very, I would say, like intellectually excited about the space. I think in school, studied a lot of economic history, and it seemed like every perspective, when you looked at it from like political economy, the monetary system, everything was kind of like very much drifting towards crypto. And it seemed to be the intersection of a lot of different perspectives that you could look at where kind of like the economy was going. So Got really excited about it there. And then I think just kind of from a personal perspective, it's a really exciting field. I mean, it's a combination of like econ, math, CS, finance, highly interdisciplinary. And I feel like I was always somebody that wanted to go back and take kind of every intro course again in college. And I feel like I sort of do that every day now. It's like catching on to a lot of new things. The field is moving very fast. Don't get me wrong. It sometimes can feel like drinking through a fire hose with how much you need to learn. But overall, it's really exciting. I empathize with a lot of what you said. And I guess, you know, I'm coming personally from a background in data science and also VR and AR. And I spent a lot of time thinking like, I was like, shoot, I, I'm lucky I got to work in my early career in VR. And then I moved to data science and both like fascinating fields. And I was like, but why does crypto really suck me in every time I try to, you know, focus on some of these other ones? And I find that it really is the combination of so many disciplines. I mean, you, you mentioned there's a history component to it. There's this finance and econ. It's still technical. So it combines like a lot of this stuff and then it touches every industry too. So you can kind of find your niche, whether that be in, in media or in more of the econ route, but totally. Well, you touched on some stuff that we're going to dive into later in the token design. But first, I want to start talking about wallets and this unbundling concept that you wrote a Twitter thread on. That's how I originally stumbled upon you and your profile. So you have a hypothesis that we all won't be using MetaMask in a few years. And I really like the take because right now we see, I think a lot of times we take what we currently have as truth. And the reality is we're in this massive figuring it out phase. And I mean, MetaMask grew rapidly from, I was just talking to a CEO at Unstoppable, Matt Gould, and he said like a year ago or maybe 18 months ago, you know, MetaMask had 500,000 users and now, you know, millions and millions, like what is it, 20 million plus? So yeah, can you talk through, you know, this hypothesis, why won't we all be using MetaMask, like how you're thinking about the concept of unbundling and how it applies to some of the crypto applications we have today? Yeah, really good question. I think it's important to back up a little and just kind of look at the major bottlenecks that still exist in crypto, which I would say uh, there are a lot of problems that are really important. I mean, liquidity is fractured, interoperability is really important. There's obviously some parties that don't want every transaction to be public. So privacy is a really exciting theme, but I think the two biggest bottlenecks in this space still are and really have always been scalability and usability. And I would argue that when you look back over the past year, the advances we saw in scalability have been pretty massive. I mean, with the rise of all these alt ones that were much faster and cheaper, obviously we have like a ZK EVM on the horizon, rise of L2s, roll-up infrastructure is a lot better. So I think from the scalability front, 
there's like a very clear path over the next few years uh, to see faster and cheaper transactions. When you turn to usability, however, I would say a lot of the interfaces you're dealing with, they're kind of just as slightly gimmicky as they were <laughs> for the past three years in an interesting way. And I think when you really think about where kind of the next cycle is going and sort of the new user personas that need to be brought in, if you're dealing particularly with applications that are largely consumer facing, I mean, gaming, social, uh, community generated IP, like those people aren't really going to spend the time learning how to use a MetaMask and understanding what's going under the hood. So you essentially really need to improve the UX that you're dealing with in modern crypto. And another interesting thought experiment that like kind of particularly inspired the tweet was this idea that think about the long run of what the user distribution of people in crypto will look like. And in my opinion, if you're looking at it on the vertical axis, uh, really being this idea of like volume transactions, and then on the horizontal, call it like crypto experience or like crypto nativeness, if that's a word, I think it'll almost look bimodal, right? On the one end, you're going to have, which backing up a little, I think is just kind of how most industries look. You have like super users and then you're kind of casual users. So I think you'll have like under your mass retail, it's going to be low average volume and high in numbers. So that's kind of like, you know, one peak. And then on the other end, your super users are like degens colloquially. It'll be these like DeFi power users uh, that are high average volume and low in total numbers. So that's why I would say the infrastructure that currently exists kind of supports the latter group. But in terms of what people are actually using for, I think, you know, one problem when I talk to a lot of people that I'm friends with in the yield farming community is like, I can't really see staking APYs on MetaMask. Uh, you don't really like have an ability to monitor health factors, your leverage positions. And on the other end, it's like a very hard onboarding experience for somebody that's new to crypto. I mean, this is highly, highly anecdotal, but <laughs> like the major barrier in terms of my parents opening a wallet is like, they don't really know how, I think it's gonna get hacked. And I mean, rightfully, when you look at what's kind of being presented in the media over the past year, you've obviously seen these like hundreds of million dollar hacks. And a lot of them are like going to the front end of the host. So the wallet is obviously kind of the main pain point there. So. Like an interesting case study that I also think when you zoom in on, it's kind of interesting to consider is Phantom, which full disclosure, uh, they're in our portfolio, but Phantom really prioritized this very clean, sleek UI that was you know, relatively simple for people that you could call crypto curious. So when you look at a marginal improvement in UX for that, you basically saw the explosion of the entire Solana ecosystem. It was people that were near to crypto, largely just trading uh, NFTs, like multiple transactions per day, uh, relatively low average prices, but when you think of like that outcome for a marginal increase, what happens when you like 3x that and have like automatic on-ramping, better security, and you think of the other features that most kind of like mass retail users look for. So that's why I kind of broadly think unbundling will kind of occur both across like user persona, so you can think of that as like almost your verticals in terms of who you're dealing with in crypto. And then another interesting idea that I've been playing around with more recently is uh, when you think about it in terms of the main components of a wallet, which or like, I think you're going to see dramatic increase in security. You obviously have key storage in addition to that transaction signing. And then obviously like actually uh, transmitting to a node, I think you're going to almost see unbundling there too, to the point where people that are developing this next generation of wallets are basically just going to be on the front end. And then you're going to have this other slew of companies, which you're kind of seeing right now with node providers like Infura and Alchemy, that basically productize an API that's going to link in and basically have the back end just be kind of like plug and play in that sense. So. I think that's kind of my like grand thesis for where wallets are going. Yeah, definitely some questions on that. But one thought first is thinking about wallets. Like, I don't know, a lot of people look at wallets as like your center 
point for Web3. And I just find it interesting because at Unstoppable, my viewpoint right now is definitely like your NFT domain is almost the your go-to source day to day because you can connect so many different wallets to it. Like a, a problem point I find with wallets right now is a lot of them are you're just limited to one blockchain potentially. And so for when you connect wallet on a site, like that site maybe only has information flow to my Ethereum wallet. And instead, if I was logging in with my NFT domain that has my Ethereum, Phantom, Solana wallet connected to it, now they can get some communication and access to, you know, more of my whole digital self, my my wallets across chain. So that's been a little bit of something I've been thinking through too. Yeah. So you mentioned like unbundling and that we've seen in the past in Web2. Like, are there examples you can maybe just explain or showcase, you know, an, an example in Web2 on how unbundling happened after like the initial tech explosion? Yeah. Once again, historically, it seems to be directionally where a lot of tech heads. I would just kind of level set with the idea that I would argue like the entire modern tech industry was just kind of this gradual process of disaggregation. Like, your computers, and then you had hardware and software, and then software turned into applications and operating systems, and then applications are now just becoming a bunch of different APIs and front ends. So I think when you kind of look how that progresses over time, it, I would argue that like to a certain extent, you could just sort of level set with like, why wouldn't crypto just sort of mimic uh, broader innovation in tech? And then I think looking in at a specific example is kind of what happened in marketplaces over the past few decades, where you obviously had Craigslist, which is this massive aggregator. I guess you could think of that as like kind of the open sea um, of what was going on on Web2, just for broader marketplaces. And then that really started to unbundle. And you saw just kind of more niche experiences that basically served specific you know, sectors. So you obviously ended up with like your like dating apps and like, you know, modern tenders and then other marketplaces that, I mean, now you're getting this generation of like right-wing marketplaces on demand. And then those are all kind of starting to unbundle. But I think... There's an important difference there where uh, you are really dealing with kind of specific sectors. So people definitely use multiple marketplaces. I think what's interesting to consider about wallets is I think that unbundling is going to happen more so in the perspective of user persona in terms of, you know, how experienced with crypto they are and how much they really want to get out. Because in my opinion, it's perfectly fine to expect in the long run that some people are just going to interact with like Web3 Social or hold, you know, some NFTs that are linked to a specific collection that they're part of or a social group, or they really want to, you know, be able to buy the NFTs that are launched by a creator that they really care about, which like, that's fine. Everyone doesn't need to be like interacting with <laughs> like Uniswap taking leverage on like Aave in the long run. But I think it's important to consider that if you're only expecting to get that much out of the ecosystem, the onboarding experience needs to be pretty seamless. And then you also are willing to compromise like, you know, security and decentralization a little bit more than other people, which in my opinion is fine. It's all about what are the individual preferences of that specific user persona. Yeah, I find just because we're like, we're both plugged into like crypto Twitter, right? And so many people on crypto Twitter are so focused on like being as crypto native as possible. And I, I see a lot of commentary on like needing to go the full decentralized route, but like there's a reason Coinbase exists alongside Uniswap. Not everyone wants to be going through that whole funnel to on-ramp into crypto. And definitely that user experience is something I think, even again, at Unstoppable, like thinking about it too. How can you buy a domain with a credit card or crypto? Like you get to choose, but definitely need to be providing options to all the different personas if you really think about adoption in the long run. 
Exactly. I mean, another theme that I'm kind of broadly excited about is this idea of abstraction, where, I mean, interestingly, when you think about the future of NFTs and crypto more broadly, it could largely almost be through some of the major Web2 apps today when you think about like Spotify's integrations, Reddit's, Instagram. I mean, obviously, Meta is making a push there. So it's interesting to think about you could have like this crypto native sect of applications where I think like marketplaces demand a separate experience, in my opinion. It's like you're kind of aggregating NFTs across a bunch of different uh, specific websites. But I think it's interesting that like almost the Trojan horse for mass adoption is going to be like apps that people are familiar with and they trust. So from there, obviously, you know, some people are going to get deeper and deeper into the ecosystem because that's just what always happens. But some people also want to just kind of smoothly on ramp from their bank account to purchase an NFT on Spotify or something. So yeah. Totally. Well, can you give me one, like one improvement? If you were to tell MetaMask to do one thing today, like what's that, what's that improvement that you're recommending to the product or design team? Better security. I think, yeah, that's a big thing that they need in terms of looking to that next audience that could potentially come in as part of the next cycle being mass retail and consumer. That's something that they're really going to care about. Just kind of like some guarantee. I mean, that could take the form of like, an insurance protocol that's linked, but it could also just be better uh, front-end security. Yeah. I really want like some of the design around signing transactions to just be explained in layman's terms. Like everything should be explained at like on five. You see transactions that you have to sign. And the truth is like a lot of times I just don't really know what some of the addresses are that they're showing me and stuff like that. And that's where you see a lot of these people getting fished and scammed, right? So when they're clicking faulty links, because it looks like every other transaction, but um, it's really not in a lot of it's still a little too code or developer or like crypto native versus just um, the websites that we're, we're used to, right? So and even coming from like a technical background, I'm like, all right, what's going on here with this transaction? Can I click accept, you know, I guess the the best thing to do is not keep the most important assets on your wallet. But again, like that's not the world we want to live in. So yeah, totally agree. And I think it's interesting to consider just sort of like how obvious that user feedback is and that you haven't really seen a wallet that's like really attacked that opportunity yet. So it's a space that I'm really excited about. Yeah. Well, can we talk about a couple other areas within Web3 that I think you also have interest in? I, I saw that in, you know, in your post about joining Variant, you talked about marketplaces for long tail assets and under collateralized lending. I just want to touch on those really quickly because they are terms I think I understand on the high level, but I'd love to hear a little bit more like what is a marketplace for a long tail asset and why do we need them? I would essentially say long tail assets are think kind of more niche things. Uh, zooming out, a broader thesis that I have is this idea of the financialization of everything. Once again, thinking in terms of historical patterns. And one thing that I find really exciting about crypto, when you contrast that out with TradFi, is the startup and upkeep costs of any sort of market is extremely cheap. I mean, it's essentially a factory contract, right? Whereas when you're dealing with markets in TradFi, they need servicing. They obviously need somebody to run a centralized order book, which like that's very expensive. And smart contracts have the ability to essentially automate all of that stuff away. So you have the opportunity to introduce these liquid markets uh, for more niche long tail assets that were really never possible before. And what is a long tail asset? I mean, in crypto, you would deal with it uh, specifically as being like long tail tokens. So that would be anything that's like very small market cap, usually low liquidity. And at variance, early investors in Uniswap. And our thesis there was the AMM model is just fundamentally better for those because uh, we can kind of create these permissionless pools that always have passive liquidity. And that's just kind of the model that you're going to need because execution on an order book is going to take a while. But I think it's interesting to kind of expand it to 
you know, derivatives of other assets uh, that can now have liquid markets. So you can think of, for example, taking like a StockX or a GOAT, uh, using an API for most of the prices that they have for sneakers and introducing liquid markets for specific sneaker prices. That now, I mean, obviously there's like regulatory barriers to get over in the sense that you're dealing with the new set of derivatives, but like very interesting applications there, like neighborhood level real estate, basically anything that you have a price feed for can now be created in a liquid market on chain through a fact, through one smart contract, which is pretty insane. So is like that financialization of everything just too much for the average person? Or do you think just like the right communities will want to plug into that? Because I'm, you know, I you talk about like, tokens and we haven't quite got into token distribution just yet but you know a thought i have about it that kind of stuff is all right what happens when i have like 200 different tokens that i in my wallet like that's too much for anyone to keep track of you know i can barely keep track of like i, I could barely keep track when i held 40 nfts like following floors you know even if i just hold bitcoin ethereum and you know one other coin like even following that day to day is a lot so i think about the financialization of everything being maybe overwhelming for the average person I totally agree. And that's why I would go back to the point I made earlier about what the user distribution in the long run for crypto is going to look like. You're going to have a lot of casual users that are just going to interact with probably a few NFTs and a few more consumer facing protocols. But what I find exciting about this idea of these niche asset markets is that like you have very specific domain experts for a lot of these uh, specific industries, yet they don't really have an opportunity to invest in them, at least in liquid markets right now. I mean, for example, like an easy investment at the onset of the pandemic would have been, how do I short New York real estate? And no one can do that, right? Like you can maybe go to like a REIT, like there might be like an MBS product that's kind of linked to that. But looking at that from a liquid perspective, you don't really have an opportunity unless you're willing to put up like a few million dollars to buy property in New York and then like I'd somehow short it. Whereas I think when you consider these possible new derivative markets on chain, I, as long as you have a price feed, which you're seeing a lot of those currently being developed, we're talking to some teams in that area. It's very exciting to think about like sort of new smaller investors that can then get into them, which like I would expect the vast majority of people, frankly, like not to care about them. <laughs> kind of just like ignore what's going on there. But at the same time, I do think you're seeing very specific sort of subsets of investors that are interested in these kind of niche asset classes that they currently don't have access to in TradFi and even in crypto at this point. Yeah, makes sense. Definitely a, a cool example. So I don't know. Personally, I've never gotten into shorting stuff, but I understand like why that could be an application. Well, let's just like dive into token distribution. I know that's a big part of the research and like investing thesis that you have, right? So I got a quote here from you, like to share on the pod. Uh, it said, ownership through token networks introduces an entirely new design space for web applications. To me, that's Derek speaking. It offers a multitude of new attack vectors, including airdrops, vampire attacks, and others for challenging, seemingly invincible incumbents, creating an opportunity for a new generation of highly innovative tech startups. Jam-packed sentence right there. A lot to dive into. Like, walk us through that thesis and and, and how token distribution can help like the next wave of of startups. I'm particularly interested in like how does that create a more open environment for people to like create than maybe the current world we live in today? Like, does it inspire entrepreneurship? Does it make access to innovation easier? Yeah, that's a really good question. And especially like the way that you frame it. I would definitely say when you kind of look at the current state of token distribution, there's like a long way to go <laughs> in terms of some of those goals. But I think 
really just going back to first principles and kind of a simple heuristic in terms of how you just view human instinct is like people really care about and value the things that they own, right? Like, I, you know, every human kind of likes their own property. And what's really exciting about token distribution, these potential new models is that you didn't really, you know, have access to this when you're dealing with Web2. It was like, maybe you could distribute equity. Shareholders would definitely be against that. But then you need to go to like an exchange, like the equivalent of some kind of custodian. How exactly you do that? Which one do you pick? Whereas obviously just linking any kind of Web3 wallet to an application can basically reward users for using it. And that's, in my opinion, like a very powerful concept in terms of how you can bootstrap a new base of users and Early experiments you saw, I'd say particularly like a year and a half ago, were basically like single-sided staking and liquidity mining. Like <laughs> basically had like your pick of two mechanisms and they both proved to be, they both proved to have a certain extent of adverse selection, right? It was people that were highly mercenary kind of just wanted to farm token rewards. And now you're seeing massive innovation in the space to the point where like you have the entire alphabet practically <laughs> in front of some tokens regarding like, you know, where you're staking it for how long, what kind of lockup did you accept? So it's very interesting to consider where the field is going from here. And like what I find so powerful about that model is once again, investing as the thesis that in the long run, a lot of the wallet infrastructure is going to improve and bring in mass retail. I think like a lot of people are just kind of generally excited about the fact that like they can participate in governance, they can own part of the application that they use, which like that, in my opinion, purely from the perspective of kind of, like I said, just basic human instinct is a very exciting concept. Because that's not really something you got in any of those three prior platform innovations I pointed out earlier. And it unlocks this whole new slew of game theoretic mechanisms in terms of how you can actually coordinate players in a token network. So it's something we're very excited about. And I would say when you look at kind of the most exciting business models in Web3, they're entirely non-schemorphic. It's like brand new types of decentralized networks that are able to coordinate work and users across you know the entire world. Yeah. And... We were talking about wallets earlier, and there was almost like a spectrum of decentralization across maybe the UIs and experiences you might get. And I think that with this token ownership, as it applies to a business model or you know a Web3 startup, there's probably also a spectrum. We're talking about the most side of that spectrum on one side with these tokens and ownership, right? Am I hearing from you that like... You think that's an interesting way or are you saying that's the only way that maybe like a Web3 company should be operating? Yeah, that's a really good question. And one thing that we're really digging into as a fund is this idea that ownership as it currently exists is very monotone, right? You kind of own something or you don't. But the interesting thing when you look at tokens is kind of unlocks this new design space of different types of ownership. So like owning an NFT that's attached to an application and an offshoot is very different from owning a protocol token which that is very different than like locking in a VE contract and owning some of the staking rewards. So you're seeing very different forms of how you can actually coordinate different types of users based off of the kind of ownership that you give them in a network. So I think what we find really exciting is really back to this idea that like this didn't really exist before. It's this entirely new design space for web developers that can now build suites of new applications that just weren't even possible over the past few decades. And I mean, we firmly believe that this is entirely the early innings. Like, you know, the most exciting innovations are kind of yet to come. Yeah. Is there like some examples of like the, a super interesting token model that you've seen implemented so far? Yeah. I would definitely check out a piece I wrote about trends in token distribution. I would say like within token design, distribution is something that I focus on a lot in terms of personal research. But like a few interesting models that are really popular there are definitely like vote escrow tokens, VE, that was invented by Curve. 
basically this idea that by kind of locking up tokens um, and accepting that can't really, you know, um, unstake them over the course of a few years, you would basically boost both your rewards and your governance power. So it's this interesting mechanism that kind of takes the most long-term aligned participants and gives them the most power in a network, both in terms of the revenue that they accrue and the actual power that they have in governing it. So that's one model that you're definitely seeing a lot of people adopt. Uh, for example, Balancer, uh, Ribbon was experimenting with it. Yearn, a few months ago, introduced a new tokenomic model that basically wasn't kind of one for one, but brought in pretty similar elements. And I actually tweeted about this a while ago, looking at kind of an interesting quasi-experiment of Curve versus Sushi Swap. And so for Sushi, you basically stake and you get X Sushi, and that can be like immediately redeemed. There's no lockup. And when you looked at a lot of the like volatile market conditions and some of the price crashes, Curve actually saw like proportionally about one-tenth of the withdrawals that Sushi did. And like kind of the interesting outcome you get of there, and like my main takeaway is with lockups, it is in a sense a selection mechanism. A lot of people aren't really willing to accept that market risk. Like you are ultimately locking tokens and hoping that over the next four years, or not four, but one, two, three, or four, they'll be more valuable. Whereas immediately being able to unstake is obviously a lot more flexible and just more liquid. So you basically see a lot less volatility in the price, but you don't get the run-ups that you saw, uh, once again, in percentage terms that you saw with Sushi. Another interesting model that uh, we just did a Twitter spaces with as a fund is uh, Goldfinches. They're one of our porcos. So they basically took VE and slightly adopted it to this membership model that's really interesting, which like in the interest of time, won't get like too deep in there. And then I would say other interesting models that I saw, uh, particularly on kind of the initial distribution side or TGEs, you're seeing a lot of really interesting uh, new auction mechanism. So like Lock Protocol is introducing uh, this new mechanism called streaming auctions, where you can basically kind of go like in or out of the actual auction, and then it'll stream it to people based off of the proportion of tokens they have locked in the pool at that moment, which they're usually running over like a few hours where everyone can kind of be at their screen ready to go. So you're seeing a lot of really interesting innovation there. And I think backing up, the one thing I really want to double click on is a year and a half ago, it was a very small space. It was like you had ICOs, airdrops, like liquidity mining and single-sided staking. Like, that was those were kind of the tools that you had. And then I think over the past year and a half, a lot of people realized how important this is and particularly how much of a new tool it is for pure like user acquisition. And that tokens are actually like a product in addition to what you're building in a very interesting way. So you're seeing a lot more experimentation in that specific topic. Yeah. There was a phase in the last year where every project was coming out with, you know, an airdrop of tokens and and a lot of those have just fallen in price because it's just like here's a token all right, that, and that's it. And like, maybe you can, you, you can use it to vote on some proposals, but like its value is hard to really determine. And so I feel like from my perspective, I just saw a lot of people hoping to make a quick buck versus thinking about how this actually gets implemented in the business. So I'm sure there's really interesting cases and a lot of them were yet to see. But over the last year, I've been a little disappointed with some of these token drops because it's, it's just all about making making some money and then and piecing out versus actually being ownership in the long run. So not every community might want that, you know, that participation, but definitely uh, some good thought experience experiments for sure. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the interesting sort of pivot I think you're seeing in the field is this increased use of lockups. So for example, you're seeing an increased use of lock drops, which are basically airdrops, but you can't really, a token's not immediately liquid. And then obviously looking to like the staking mechanisms, you're seeing this mass expansive VE. So I think a lot of people are just viewing those as 
almost a selection mechanism for like the people that are going to go into those or most long-term aligned because obviously like you can't immediately sell the token so yeah it's really interesting yeah i mean ultimately the idea of owning a token it comes back to like a theme i love to hit on on the podcast is is just digital ownership and sometimes that can come through a token sometimes the company that you're or that you're working with, it can come from their product comes in the form of an NFT. So like when I think about Web3 companies and the spectrum of you know decentralization ultimately is the product they're building is what they're building on crypto rails, like is what you're buying for them an actual NFT you own in your wallet. And so there's there's that form of ownership. And then there's, I guess, also the the token side of it. But no, good discussion. Appreciate your insight on that. And you you cool if we talk about a little bit of on-chain data analytics? Because that was another topic I'd love to dive in with you. Sounds great. Yeah. We could, I mean, we could have probably talked about token design and engineering for a whole pod. So I'm flying through this stuff. So yeah, on-chain data analytics. I thought it was interesting that, I mean, you mentioned even in your intro about yourself, like you learned some SQL and that helped you do some research. I mean, I think a lot of people in the NFT space a bit are familiar with doing analytics. I can't say everyone's used it. I definitely have like looked at their dashboards, but I find myself just interested in this analytics side coming from like my data science background. But like, what's the current analytics market look like today? Uh, I'd like to maybe talk through a couple of resources and tools that you use and then like dive into really the, the importance of this open data structure that I guess we have with Web3. And I, I find that pretty interesting. Yeah. So zooming out, I think, given the theme that we talked about a little bit earlier and sort of this vast expanse of long-tail tokens that you're seeing just generally in the market, you kind of are dealing with a primary trade-off in terms of current analytics tooling. I like to think of that as you can either have breadth, which I would say Dune is going for, or uh, like absolute quality control, which I would say when you look at tools, you know, particularly like token terminals, when that comes to mind, that's what they prioritize. And essentially what I mean by that is what every analytics team we've spoken to was primarily struggling with this is how do you kind of scale the amount of projects that you cover? Because all smart contracts are written slightly differently, dealing with a lot of different categories. So if you want to get the important valuation multiples that people really care about, think like revenue, TVL, just kind of general volume that you're seeing, it's actually quite hard. I mean, you usually need to write basically like customized SQL and Dune or uh, kind of fork it and like tweak the code a little bit in terms of actually acquiring it from that specific smart contract. So. The interesting thing about Dune is, I would say it's like as much an analytics platform as it is social. You know what I mean? It's like you can kind of follow people that you really like. And I mean, one thing that's really good about it is it obviously prioritizes breadth. Like every project basically develops a Dune dashboard, but you do have to a certain extent adverse um, incentives in the sense that like you have a lot of teams that are writing their own SQL code and putting forth their own dashboard where like you're having users that might not be the most fluent in SQL kind of looking at them. So um, you don't really have like a quality control barrier there. Whereas like token terminals angle is much more like we're going to do everything in house, make sure that the data is entirely correct and just kind of verify everything ourselves, which obviously takes a lot longer. Like that doesn't really scale very well. So I would say that's kind of the current landscape of analytics tooling we're dealing with. But what really excites me about it, and I think looking forward, why I think there's a very credible argument for more and more finance and just kind of general business should be done on chain is that you basically have these real-time data feeds of everything going on to the point where if you're looking at any DeFi protocol, every day and really every second you can monitor like their revenue, their general volume, their TVL, how many addresses are using it, which is a really powerful tool in terms of understanding what's going on from a fundamentals perspective looking at essentially, you know, a new type of business or protocol. Whereas 
you look to most companies dealing with public equities, you obviously get these four snapshots. Yeah, I got this. I got another quote that I just got in front of me on the screen from one of your articles. And it's you said, unlike TradFi, where the market gets four quarterly snapshots of a company's fundamentals based health, protocols can be constantly monitored. And at scale, these data flows can be more efficient and reduce the need for a guessing game of key indicators each quarter. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, does this does this access to that 24-7 data feed, does that help institutional investors more? Does it help retail investors more? Or I mean, or is it kind of still just for these this niche group of people who are really looking at the on-chain analytics? Because I'd, I'd say like the people who are actually doing that day-to-day, you know, data scraping or an- an analysis is probably a, a small percentage of traders. Yeah, really good question. Um, I would say institutions are always advantaged. <laughs> I mean, they just have kind of the resources, usually like an entire floor of data engineers that are just kind of building out, you know, uh, proprietary infrastructure for how they actually go about uh, piping the data, different Excel sheets, looking through it. So like in that sense, I would say they always do just have a little bit of the upper hand. That being said, I think from the perspective of retail, it very much like reduces the barriers where, you know, anyone can sign up for a Dune account and it's free. I mean, it's public, but you don't need to rely on like, you know, a Bloomberg terminal or any kind of like advanced tooling. You'd usually need to dig through a lot of the sell side reports and what you get in TradFi. And what I find most interesting about the perspective is, in my opinion, there's actually a very credible argument that in the long run, kind of like I said before, more and more finance and business will be done on chain. I think purely from a normative perspective, it makes sense that, you know, you get these constant snapshots. It makes sense that you have kind of a real-time look into companies that are usually black boxes. But I actually think purely when you look at it from a cost reduction perspective, you're basically automating away certain segments of investor relations, right? Like no more kind of like quarterly presentation, SEC filings. It's like you can kind of just pipe that data directly into anyone that's looking for it. So the idea of real-time data on a public database is just very exciting in terms of like the major advantages you get for that in finance. Yeah. Is there a good first project that, I mean, maybe, and this is one that, you know, there's a dashboard out there already and that's okay, but is there a good first project you might recommend someone looking to make their first Dune dashboard or... I don't know if there's resources. I haven't looked into it too much myself, but I'd love to make a, a dashboard, even if it's a simple one. I mean, I'm sure I could pull like an unstoppable domains, smart contract address and and make a dashboard around like minted domains or something like that. Yeah, I would definitely check out the R Network Learn course. That's definitely one of the resources that I found most helpful. In terms of a first dashboard, I the Dex.Trades abstraction is really easy to play with, I would say. That's a good one if you just want to query, you know, any sort of volume on a major DEX and just kind of get an idea of what's going on under the hood there. I think that's you know a relatively straightforward one to play around with at first. Yeah, and that our network, that's the the data 30 for 30 course you're talking about? Yep. Does that share SQL code or am I going to walk away from that YouTube course actually having created a dashboard? Yeah, I mean, essentially the way the course works is internally there was a cohort that they had of a bunch of different data scientists. They were training in SQL. So... The idea was you had some degree of familiarity at first, but I mean, they really kind of, to a certain extent, start from the ground. And there are dashboards that you can kind of create along with the course and that the instructors are, I mean, it's Dune, it's completely public and that you can look at to check yourself or you can kind of just watch as a resource and try to toy around on your own, but definitely a very good one. Cool. Yeah, I'll give it a go. The last time I tried to do kind of a, a data challenge was tried to build a machine learning model to predict the cost or 
the price of NBA Top Shot moments when Top Shot came, like when I was in my Top Shot moment early 2021. And it ended up just being like a, a total non-conclusive model because the, I think it was the data like in February or in January, a LeBron James moment was trading for $5. And then in uh, a month later, it was going for like $5,000. So it had no idea how to predict price since the price was fluctuating too fast. But I'm sure there's some more basic just data viz kind of stuff I can do in Dune. That would be a lot of fun. That, that's cool to walk through that. A lot of times on this podcast, we're talking about like just high level co- concepts, trends. But if you're listening right now, I'd really encourage you to go to Dune, try to see if you can find something that interests you, especially if you have a technical background. I mean, talk about bridging the non-crypto world with the crypto world, like data scientists and data analyst jobs are some of the most like highly sought after in like just the the non-crypto industry. And I think that is going to be coming so much more of an important functional role at startups and these companies as they grow bigger. So good skill set to have in your back pocket. Let's do the one, two, web three. I got three rapid fire questions to throw at you that I ask every guest. You ready? Yeah, go ahead. Shoot. All right. <laughs> First one, who's an influential web three creator, entrepreneur, collector that's inspired or educated you? My bosses are listening. <laughs> Very big fans of the three variant GPs. I yeah, I got some exposure to them in Accolade and just had a lot of respect and I, amazing mentors. I think in terms of a founder that I really respect, like Hayden at Uniswap, I think what he's done is pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, that protocol is just executed beautifully. I think, you know, very hungry, aggressive in terms of, frankly, attacking a market that to a certain extent kind of existed out of 2018 and has just kind of done so much. So respect him a lot. For sure. Cool. All right. Second question. What's your favorite NFT? I guess it would be a little bit more of a collection, but I think what Aletheia is doing with INFTs is really interesting. So they, I'm sure you're probably familiar, but basically released this collection they called The Revenants, which basically historical characters with AI embedded in them to the point where you can kind of like interact with and talk to essentially your own kind of ownable personalized Siri. It would be everything from Cleopatra to Dr. Frankenstein to Thomas Jefferson. It's really interesting. Honestly, no, I'm not familiar. Wait, can you tell me the name of that collection again? I just want to make sure I hear that right. Yeah, Aletheia. Aletheia. All right. How do you spell that for anyone and listen and that has no idea? A-L-E-T-H-E-A. Uh, okay, cool. Aletheia AI NFT. I'm going to Google that. I'm sure it pops up. Yep, I'm seeing it. I'm going to look into them. Sweet. And then last question for you is in five years, what's the craziest thing you think we'll be doing in the metaverse that people just aren't thinking about yet? I guess this is kind of a mundane answer, but I'd probably say I think virtual work will transition partially into the office. And then I would say in five years, largely metaverse based. But And that's like telepresence or, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I would just say kind of more interactive forms of being quote in an office. Yeah. We were talking, I talked with Adam Draper, another investor in, in the crypto space. And he said the metaverse is really the combination of three things, immersion, ownership and connectivity, connectivity being like broadband, 5G, ownership being NFTs, and then connectivity, sorry, immersion being like VR, AR. So I think some of the, that telepresence and in-office stuff might be browser-based, but eventually it could also be, you know, VR, AR-based too. So excited to see some of that stuff take place, but awesome. Well, Derek, this has been a fantastic interview. Thank you for sharing your perspectives with me and talking about all the things you find interesting from token design to the unbundling. I'm definitely interested to see that play out over the next couple of years. But can you let us know where can we find you, follow you and stay up to date on the things you're working on? 
Yeah, of course. Easiest place is probably Twitter, DerekMW23. Definitely give me a follow if you can. And then in addition to that, I would say um, most of my contact info in terms of email, it's on our website. I would honestly say easiest way to get in touch with me is honestly a Twitter DM. I'm usually pretty good about checking those. So uh, please reach out if you're building anything that kind of touches on any of these topics or particularly if you just want some tactical advice on token design, I, you know, here's a open. Heck yeah. Well, thank you to everyone listening to the Unstoppable Podcast. We're coming at you every single week, dropping on Tuesdays, talking to investors, entrepreneurs, collectors in the space. So yeah, hope you find it educating, entertaining, and all the above. So with that, see you in the metaverse. And thanks for listening. Peace out. Thanks. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you so much for listening.